Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be speaking with Alexander Maxwell about his book, Choosing Slovakia, Slavic Hungary, the Czechoslovak Language, and Accidental Nationalism. Uh, it's published by Taurus Academic Studies. And it's an intriguing rethinking of language and identity in the process of uh, the emergence of a Slovak national identity. So it's my pleasure to welcome Alexander Maxwell to the program. Hello, Alexander. How are you doing today? Very well. Nice to talk to you. It's wonderful to have you on uh, and talk to you about Hi. your book, Choosing Slovakia. It's and, nice to be on. Well, and uh, this is, uh, we, we have done international before. We had uh, David Crowley and Susan Reed uh, from Britain. But uh, from New Zealand, that's a real treat, and uh, that's uh, and the wonders of Skype. So um, I guess the first thing we'll talk about is just to give people a little background. I mean, how did you get in- interested in Eastern Europe in the first place and then uh, end up writing a book about Slovakia? Well, like a lot of illustrious predecessors in East European studies, I started off being interested in Germany. There was a point in my life where the only thing I wanted to do was to move to Berlin. It so happened that I spent the summer of 1989 in Germany, improving my German and hoping to enroll in the Freie Universität Berlin in the in the fall. And uh, that um, that sort of fell through. So I went back to America to uh, to continue the university studies I was doing there which meant that I missed everything. When the wall came down, when communism collapsed, I was in California, you know, sick that I wasn't uh, in Europe, that I was missing everything. So I started reading every newspaper I could because it was the only thing I could do to, to feel in touch with these, these biggest events. And that introduced me to the very inspiring person of Václav Havel. Before I knew it, I was very interested in Czechoslovakia and pursuing Czechoslovak uh, history and reading Czechoslovak, uh, well, reading about Czechoslovak history. When I eventually got to Germany as an exchange student, I then started taking Czech language. And before I knew it, I had completely lost interest in all things German and had uh, started uh, you know, my career as a Czechoslovak expert. Okay, and uh, so, and then, but, you know, Slovakia is not exactly the place, I mean, you, you already mentioned Havel, you didn't mention uh, Dubček or yes. some of the, well, uh, the Slo- Slovak people. How did, story, what was the move to Slovakia in particular? The story behind that is as follows. Uh, I lived in Prague for a year, then I, you know, went to Japan, did some other stuff, went back to Prague and studied, tried to study Czech very intensively before going to graduate school. And then when I got to graduate school, my original plan was to write a history of Czechoslovak nationalisms in the plural. I was always interested in this question of contingency. So my original plan was to write about Bohemian nationalism, Moravian nationalism, Slovak nationalism, Czechoslovak nationalism, 
Czech nationalism and pan-Slavism as sort of competing a competing horse race, or I'm not quite sure what I imagined. It's a long time ago. But since I had spent all this time in Prague, I felt that I didn't know anything about the Slovak half of Czechoslovakia. So the very first paper I wrote in graduate school for Stanley Payne uh, in a Europe Between the War class was about Czechoslovakia in the interwar period uh, to sort of balance out my knowing more about Czech history than Slovak history. And that paper that I wrote for that class was sort of the, the kernel around which the whole book crystallized. And I ended up never getting around to researching any Czech nationalism because there was just so much to say and so much to learn and so much to read about to get my head around what was going on in Slovakia. Well, and we have a book for it, as you, as you say. Indeed. Well, I mean, Slovak studies is a is a rather understudied discipline. Uh, exactly. I ended up writing my first master's master's thesis on Macedonia. There's all kinds of super smart people who've written about Macedonia, but the pickings in Slovak literature in English is uh, really quite um, quite slim. So I was hoping that uh, my book would would uh, stand out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, uh, it certainly uh, raises some interesting questions. So why don't you just start, start talking about, uh, you know, the basic argument uh, the, of the book and how you frame it? Well, there are two main themes to the book. Uh, the one theme is contingency. I'm interested in how people acquire the nation that they get by studying how they reject the national ideas that they're not interested in. If a historical actor in Slovakia says, I'm so proud to be a Slovak, uh-huh. you know, that's boring. Uh, if, a, if a Slovak historical actor says, I'm so proud to be Hungarian, or I'm so proud to be Czechoslovak, or I'm so proud to be a Pan-Slav, ooh, tell me more about that. So the book consciously emphasizes these sort of paths not taken, and that's one of my main interests as a historian to look at this contingency. The other big theme in the book is the relationship between national loyalties on the one hand and linguistic loyalties on the other. I think a lot of uh, scholars of East European national movements presume that those will be the same. I mean, in in your own field in Ukrainian history, I remember um, Yaroslav Hitzak, who read uh, my second master's thesis, which was an early version of this book, he was very surprised by my argument because he said in, um, you know, in Galicia, you have the Russophiles who believe in a Russian language, boom. You have the Ukrainophiles who believe in Ukrainian language, Ukrainian nation, boom. And there was no, um, there was no equivalent camps in the Slovak case in the same way. Everything was all much more complicated than that. So I found out that I had to distinguish uh, the, the story of national loyalties on the one hand from the story of linguistic loyalties on the other. And the story of linguistic loyalties turned out actually to be much the more compelling. Well, um, well, this all takes place in the context, as you were, you know, you mentioned uh, what was going on in, in Galicia uh, in the you know mid 19th centuries and camps, it all takes place in something we talk about as the uh, national, often called national awakenings. Yes. How do you understand a national awakening? Uh, and you know, as, as they occurred in the 19th century, what's the context and your understanding of that? 
The term National Awakening is um, contested, and I believe that was actually our first, how we first came into contact with each other. We had a, an email discussion over the term National Awakening, if I recall. Uh, do you remember that? I do remember a very lengthy yes. one. I know we were talking about I don't remember all the specifics of it. I just know uh, <laughs> there was a lot There was a lot of... Um, it was a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, ink isn't quite... The um, digital, the digital uh, equivalent of ink spilled on that is what I think of it. Yeah, um, the electron spilled. Many people are unhappy with this term national awakening because they think that it presupposes a sleeping nation complete in all details that merely is awoken to its perfect self. There's no room for um, cultural construction or contingency in the national awakening metaphor. I, I accept this objection, but I'm unhappy with all the alternatives that I've thought of. I don't like to think of myself as studying nationalism per se, because a lot of people think that nationalism is a study of nationalist violence. I looked at my CV the other day. I've published, I don't know, 20, 25, however many articles, all on nationalism, and there's not a violence on any of them. I published on national mustaches, on national sexuality, on national grammar books, on national landscapes, and at no point is anybody trying to kill anybody. So the National Awakening is more specific, a more specific descriptor than mere nationalism. I also think that it's just sort of a, an accepted term for this period in Czechoslovak history or East European history generally. I mean, people just talk about the National Awakening as a, you know, as a time period. The, the Renaissance is also a, a phrase that we might interrogate or problematize that the European culture did not pre-exist and therefore could not be reborn. But people just refer to that period of time as the Renaissance. So I'm happy with the concept of national awakening just as a, a placeholder for a certain time period. What I think is really going on in this time period is that there is a shift in the origin of political legitimacy. I think that the monarchical principle where you obey an, an, a monarch, an emperor, a king who is ordained by God – this loses its cachet. People no longer believe in that. So what happens to replace it? What happens to replace it is that people imagine this community that they call the nation. And they imagine it in a variety of different ways that are very interesting to compare and contrast. And slowly the, the idea of the monarch uh, you know, disappears. And in place you have these new forms of contestation. The divinely ordained monarch does not lend itself very well to religious tolerance. If you obey uh, the, the Habsburg emperor because he's a good Catholic, how is the Habsburg emperor then going to view a Protestant or um, someone who's Greek Orthodox? That, that's very problematic. Uh, the, the whole point of his legitimacy is that he's a good Catholic. Or, again, in the Habsburg or in the Ottoman case, uh, if the Ottoman sultan is legitimate because he propounds the laws given in the Quran, if you're not a Muslim, how can that be a legitimate state? The nation is better at that because we can belong to the nation whatever religion we have. But when people imagine the nation, they imagine new forms of exclusion. They imagine the nation defined by, for example, speaking a common language or common imagined descent, and then people who don't speak the right language or don't have the right descent suddenly are excluded from a community that there hadn't been any problem with them belonging to that community before. 
I find this great period of transformation fascinating. So I think all of my research, both this Slovakia work and the work I'm doing on Hungary now and uh, other projects I've done, is centered on this transformation of political legitimacy from the monarchical principle to various imagined communities that we call nations. Okay. So I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, sure. No, it's helpful. I, and you also seem to, I think, you put it in a broader context, not simply of Eastern Europe, mm. but I think you, you know, you, you refer, I believe, in your introduction to, uh, uh to Peasants into Frenchmen by Eugene Weber. And, well, I, think, uh, I think the title of that book, Peasants into Frenchmen, is the most concise, most eloquent description of the national waking process that we have. Uh, it may not be the best book, but the title is the best title. So Peasants into Frenchmen, we can apply that anywhere. So I, I came up with a Weberian title for my book. So the, the title for my book is to explain why peasants turned into Slovaks by examining why peasants didn't turn into Hungarians, didn't turn into Czechoslovaks, didn't turn into Pan-Slavs. Nice. Oh, yeah, okay. And I think that actually gets at the next, my next question, which is going to speak about how the Slovak case fits into this story. But uh, let's move on then to the con- some of the issues you raise also in your introduction about conventions. Uh, and I think what I like about this, you mentioned the, an issue where you were unable to reproduce um, yes, a Slavic black letter typeface. And it struck me that you're sensitive to something that a lot of scholars aren't necessarily, just how important um, face, typefaces was as they're coming to grips with what it means to create a, a print culture. Something that's very important in the Slovak case is deciding what type of spelling, what type of grammar we want to use. Most scholars refer to that collectively as the choice of literary language. I found myself compelled to reject that term utterly. I found it very difficult to understand how linguistic nationalism worked unless I distinguished very sharply in my own mind the idea of a national language as opposed to a dialect or, or, or some other classificatory status from the linguistic practices that uh, are the objects of contestation. So if you have a grammar book and the grammar book says, uh, you know, grammar of a Slovak grammar, well, on the one hand, that is a, a series of linguistic rules, uh, standard spelling, a standard grammar, whatever it is. So the literary language. And I wanted to call that a script. So that, that book corresponds to a script. And the reason I didn't want to call it a literary language is because oftentimes the linguistic rules described in that book, the, the script, if you will, were in the, in the mind of the person who wrote the grammar book, not corresponding to the classificatory status of a language. A whole bunch of Slovaks codify a literary dialect. They, they write a grammar book, they say this is the Slovak grammar, and then the introduction clearly talks about the Slavic language, spoken from Kamchatka to the White Sea, spoken in, in um, you know, on the Adriatic, a pan-Slav language of which Slovak is merely a dialect. I think people have a lot of trouble 
recognizing that as a theoretical possibility. People assume, well, if you write a grammar book that's distinctively Slovak, obviously you must believe in a Slovak language, in Slovak language hood, if you will. But uh, that turned out not to be the case. Because I had to distinguish sharply between linguistic practices and the national associations that people made of those practices, I found it very important to distinguish linguistic, the, the fine details of linguistic codification in um, what I think some readers may find is, in what I think some readers may find uh, as technical details. Uh, the, the letter R Hacek, for example, is strongly associated today with Czechness. And so people say, well, that's a Czech letter. Well, many of my Slovaks write a grammar book that uses that letter or write an, an essay that uses that letter. And in the content of the essay, they say, we love our great Staroslovenština. We love our great old Slovak. So does, is the letter Slovak or is it Czech? We need a way to refer to the letter without ascribing it a national ethnonym, because otherwise we become confused between the name we give the linguistic uh, feature and the contestant, the contested national meanings that historical actors give to that linguistic feature. The classic example in my book is uh, the Kolar's Hlasove, which is a defense, it's a, it's a book written against Ludovic Stur. It's a defense of what I in my book called Bibličtina, the sort of old Czechoslovak tradition, if you prefer. The, the orthography of the Kralice Bible. Now, Kolar's defense of this script is normally described as a defense of Czech. This is Kolar defending Czech against Stur's Slovak. That's the normal description. But if you look at the people who are supporting Kolar in this dispute, who are preferring the old Bibličtina spelling and and rejecting Stuart's new spelling, you see that they defend that same old spelling in that book as Czech, the way you'd expect, but also as Czechoslavic, also as Czechoslovak, and once even as Slovak. There's someone who says, this Stuart script is nothing more than Czech. We stick with the Bibličtina because it's our true Slovak. So this is very hard to understand if you don't distinguish the, the linguistic name from the national ethnonym. That character, that, that historical actor would then, in the, old, in the normal terminology, he would be defending Czech as Slovak and attacking Slovak as Czech. That sounds very controversial and paradoxical. But if you say he was defending Bibličtina, as Slovak, attacking Struvčina as Czech, then it becomes easy to understand what we're talking about. So this is why I became very interested in typefaces, though, because I had to define these different um, orthographies on the basis of linguistic characteristics, which I, in practice usually meant spelling. If I would look at a text and I would see an Arhatchek, I would say, ooh, this text has an Arhatchek. If I looked at this other text and it had the A umlaut, which is associated with the modern Slovak, it's uh, from Hatala, ooh, here's a text that has, a, has an A umlaut. And if I had a text that had both an Arhatchek and an A umlaut, which I did find, then uh, I had to say that, because I thought it was important that that text that the spelling of that text didn't correspond to any of these broader categories. Now, uh, it is an important feature of the book, the, the shift from the black letter alphabet to the Latin letter alphabet. And if I 
could make that book an ideal book. You know, every time your book is published, you have certain problems with it. But if I could go back and make that book an ideal book, then there would be black letter text for black letter quotations. And uh, but that that turned out to be impossible because I couldn't find a black letter font for my computer that had S hotcheck and C hotcheck and, and all these things. The people who make black letter fonts assume that they're for Germanic languages only. So they have a uh, a umlaut and U umlaut and an S set. Sometimes they have Scandinavian, you know, the 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 O with the diagonal slash. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what that's called. But you you can't find C hotcheck in black letter, and uh, I I actually looked into designing my own font and couldn't figure out how to do it, so I, I gave up. What do do uh, the writers that you deal with um, talk about Latin versus black letter, or what is more Slavic or Slovak or Czech? They they do talk about it. They sometimes ascribe it a national dimension or a tribal dimension. Uh, other times they talk about it as old-fashioned versus more modern-looking. Uh, you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. But I, I think what's most interesting, though, is that they they view them as different alphabets, not as you know different fonts or different varieties of the Latin alphabet. But the the distinction between Latin and black letter. In the minds of 19th century Slovaks, is as great a jump as the gap between the Latin alphabet and Cyrillic. You know, the, the, the Serbian is written in Cyrillic, Bulgarian is written in Cyrillic, Ukrainian is written in Cyrillic, Polish is written in Latin, uh, and Lusatian Serbian is written in black letter. And that's a totally separate alphabet in their minds. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's you get that line. I mean, you hear it from Germans. Uh, in the 19th century and even the early 20th century, uh, certain directions where they say, you know, we should stick with our ba- our black letter because, you know, well, the Russians have their own alphabet. <laughs> Why shouldn't we? You know, uh, and it's it, it, that poses a problem, I would think, for uh, a, a Slavic black letter writer uh, or, or a proponent because they. Uh, well, they can't really in the claim it, say it's their own because it's uh, it's uh, already kind of international. In the minds of Germans, the black letter is uniquely German. But in the minds of Habsburg Slavs, that's not really the case. They see it as their own alphabet. I did notice an interesting thing once, though. That I mean, that the black letter alphabet, there are multiple black letter alphabets. And I've seen a couple of songbooks where, you know, for example, the main text will be in in Slavic, but there will be a footnote and the, it'll cite a German language book, or it'll be a you know a black letter text and will cite a German phrase in the middle of the you know the Slavic text. And I noticed that they use a different black letter alphabet for the German as for the Slavic. So there's the Fraktur versus Schwabach. And so I actually thought of writing an article once about the different types of black letter as claims to linguistic purity and, and so forth. Um, and I had actually started that that article, but what happened in the end was that I had a catastrophic computer crash, and I lost all of my images, and <laughs> I couldn't find them again when I went back to the library. I've had a terrific uh, book of um, – it's a, it was a book about the Schleswig-Holstein debate, so it had German and Danish, both in black letter, but in the same black letter, whereas the Czech-German – black letter then would be distinguished between different types of black letter and I thought that was interesting 
one of the so, weird things of reading and uh, reading 19th century documents in German is you'll suddenly they'll suddenly use Latin and they switch to a different to the you know the Latin handwriting even that we as um, Americans are familiar with and then they switch back in to the uh, you know to the bureaucratic hand that they use it's uh, it's it's kind of jarring but interesting mm. and uh, so. Yes, that, it, it, I think there is definitely more work to be done on that as, as a, an image and issue because it, it's something that I think you're particularly sensitive to and it's w- worth thinking about. Um, well, I I actually wanted to make that the main feature of my career because I realized I I was seeing things that no one else was seeing and I developed a vocabulary that no one else was developing. But I had this this terrifying experience in my first ever job interview that the the search committee looked and said, oh, I see you published on uh, Hungarian dialects. I've seen you published on this. I've seen you published on that. Are you actually a historian? (laughs) (laughs) The historians look at this sort of thing and say, oh, this is linguistics. It's not my own discipline. Linguists look at it and say, this is this is some crazy, you know, bastard history. It has nothing to do with our discipline. I've fallen through the cracks completely. I found that being interdisciplinary was disastrous on the job market. So I moved away from linguistic nationalism to look at um, things that were more classically historical topics, nationalism theory or cultural history and so forth. But now that I have my job and now that I'm uh, established, I want to return to linguistic nationalism in the future. And that will be the subject of my research over my sabbatical, which begins next year. Wow. So I will be working on this in the future. But in I, I, I consciously moved away from this field of study because it was so toxic on the job market. Well, let's move back to it and um, elaborate a bit more about the process of language codification, uh, both as historians generally talk about it and as you see it and, you know, how, how are the differences. And i also like you to talk a bit more about the confessional issues that arise I mean uh, in in Slovakia because I think most people you know who work in Eastern Europe or you know are not particularly focused on Slovakia tend to assume that it's a uh, this is largely an issue of Catholics with a, with a smattering of some Greek Catholics here in the east uh, who may or may not be Russians some decide they're Slovaks eventually others don't um, and uh, just could you elaborate on those topics, please? The question of language codification has two dimensions. On the one hand, you have the person who writes the grammar book and what linguistic ideology that person may or may not have. But on the other hand, you have the question of who actually learns to read and write in that alphabet, in that script, according to those conventions. So that leads you to more institutional history. Who is learning these script in, uh, is students in schools? So who's schools? And you have the situation that schools are frequently run by churches or religious institutions. Now, if you have a situation where there are multiple faiths in one region, like Hungary, even in the Slovak parts of Hungary, you have Catholics, you have Lutherans, you have Calvinists, and they have different schools. You may find that the teachers of the sort of Slavic language in those schools prefer different books. 
you may find that they prefer different grammar books. So I found it necessary to distinguish the the Catholics with their Bernal Acuccino, with uh, Calvinists with this uh, East Slovak that I, I wasn't quite sure who had codified it, so I called it East Slovak. And then the, the Lutherans, who are the, the active, the most active, they switch. They start off being interested in um, the Biblistina, and then they switch to uh, Sturovchina, and then they eventually adopt Hatalovchina. So it was important because the, the institutions of language learning are associated with with uh, with churches. So that's why it played a role. And to what extent is there a sense that we're Catholics, we don't want to mess with your Biblia's Shina? And by the way, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Slavic languages, Biblia's Shina comes from the word Bible. It was the way the, the Slovak Bible was translated, if I understood correctly. And that's correct. I wanted to name all of the different scripts, not in terms of a an, an national ethnonym, you know, the Slovak script, the Czech script, or, or even Stur Slovak, Hatelar Slovak, uh, Bernalak Slovak, but rather to name them only after the person who codified them. So Hatela script is Hatelovchina, Stur script is Sturovchina, and, and so forth. Because this uh, traditional way of writing that's more or less uncodified ultimately derives from the prestige of the Karalitsa Bible, I called it Bilichtina. And that's not my own coinage. Lots of people talk about Bilichtina, uh, both primary sources and secondary sources. I'm afraid I've forgotten the question, though. Well, I was just, you know, curious as to, you know, to what extent the different faiths are saying no to oh, yes. language and, you know, how important that is and how does that get overcome? There are people who don't want to write in that good-for-nothing script that's used by those lousy people who have the wrong religion. That plays a role in the early stages. As the threat of modernization becomes more and more severe, as the um, national movement starts to become the dominant force in politics, these confessional questions sort of fall by the wayside. Slovak intelligentsia, whether they're Catholic, whether they're, they're Lutheran, whether they're Calvinist, see modernization as a threat. And so they come together to fight that threat. The key moment in 19th century Slovak history is the codification of a pan-confessional script. And the, it's codified because Stur and some leading Catholics get together and compromise. So, in a sense, that fits into that broader story of the, the decline of divine power and the rise of national power, the, de- the decline of the monarchic principle and the rise of nations, because the confessional divisions fall away, and instead you have um, national movement or a national orthography and a national spelling and so on and so forth. Now, what is... You know, how many people sort of are going to schools and learning Slovak in, say, 1830? Hardly anybody. I would suggest even in 1900, hardly anyone is learning Slovak. And this is a, it's actually one of the most interesting things about the Slovak case, that the, even as the literacy rate goes up and up and up, the knowledge of any given Slovak spelling doesn't really go up. 
I think most people who learn to read and write in Slovakia at the end of the century are learning to read and write in Hungarian. Now, if you have an education where you learn Hungarian, you learn to spell Hungarian, you learn to write Hungarian, you're bilingual, you speak Hungarian, you read Hungarian, you write Hungarian, that knowledge of the Latin alphabet means that you can read Slovak. And if you speak Slovak, then you can kind of read Slovak as well. What it doesn't mean, though, is that you can write Slovak. It doesn't mean you can write with with great precision. The there have been many different ways to spell. You know that the 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 one orthography has an I E, the other one has an E accent, the other has a J E. There could be all these these fine discussions about how this particular diphthong should sound. And if you if you come from a part of the world where the standard language isn't based on that script. Uh, it isn't based on the local pronunciation of that town, which is most of Slovakia. You have a regional dialect anyway, so nothing, none of the choices available to you, not Czech, not Hatilovčina, not Biblicina, not Štrovčina, none of them is going to perfectly capture your pronunciation. Your speech is dialectical. So which of these standard languages do you learn? None of them, because you learn Hungarian instead. This is why I think the interwar Czechoslovakia is the decisive moment where Slovak nationalism becomes uh, crystallized and coalesced. Before the 20th century, there's lots of people who can read and write, but none of them can read and write at the high level of literacy that creates linguistic nationalism. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. It, it does make sense. I can express I'm... that clearly. Well, I'm just thinking about it from a slightly different perspective and just thinking about, um, you know, well, first of all, I, I was curious, was, is there any, do, do you see any signs of people who are writing, uh, Slovak using Hungarian orthography? The, the, um, how should we say this? Unfriendly critics will say that the Calvinist orthography is just the Hungarian orthography. And it does indeed owe, it does resemble the Hungarian orthography in a lot of ways. Hungarian, the, Hung, the sound like the S in, in, in sit. In Hungarian is written with S-Z or S-Z as we say here in New Zealand. That's sort of unusual. Everyone else, S is the S and the S-H or S-Z or whatever it is is the, the sh sound is, is written in a different way. So the Calvinists write the S sound with SZ, with SZ. So people say, oh, it's just Hungarian orthography. It's, you know, you can see how a denationalized they are. I'm uncomfortable referring to any system orthography with any ethnonym. So I'm a little hesitant to say, oh, the, the Calvinist orthography is the Hungarian orthography. I'd be more comfortable to say Calvinist orthography resembles the Hungarian orthography rather than is. Does that make sense? Sure. I want to come back to another point you were saying. You were talking about how the, the store gets together with some Catholics and they c come up with the transconfessional uh, Slovak orthography. Mm. And yet, if I understood your book, one of the interesting things is that Stor comes up with his orthography in a sense to say, we can be good Hungarians. We're not, don't confuse us with those checks over there. That's correct. And that creates an interesting irony, because on the one hand, you're talking about 
modularization, which most people, at least, uh, you know, uh, again, outside of uh, Slovak studies would probably generally say, you know, what's the difference? Hungarianization, modularization, and uh, but you I seem think to make a big difference. I the Hungarian history tends to be written as Magyar history because the Hungarians went around and said, we are the only Hungarians. Hungary, Hungary, Magyar, it's the same thing. We are the only Hungarians. Well, and eventually, eventually they won that argument, but they won it at the cost of losing all of their non-Magyar territories. <laughs> so you have to be careful what you wish for. When, the, when my story opens at the time of the French Revolution, the idea of the nation in Hungary means the nobility. There's this concept in Latin called the Nazio Hungarica, and it means members of the Hungarian nobility. The Nazio Hungarica is a multi-ethnic, multilingual entity. You can be a member of the Nazio Hungarica and speak, say, Croatian, because you're a nobleman, and that's the definition of the nation. With the French Revolution, with the rise of the national idea, these class exclusive ideas of the nation disappear. So the initial idea is a thing that retroactively we might call the Hungaris concept, which is everyone who lives in Hungary is a member of the nation, no matter what language you speak. And there are in the very early years of the 19th century, various ephemera and texts that suggest uh, a Hungarian national idea to which everyone belongs. The ethnic Hungarians, however, decide they don't like the Hungaris idea, and they want to have a more monolingual idea. They want to assimilate everyone. They want modularization. That story is well known. So people talk about the Hungaris idea as something that's transient, it doesn't go anywhere, and, and so on and so forth. Well, it certainly doesn't go anywhere among the Magyars. But I would suggest that it... it puts very deep roots down among the non-Majars, that if you look at the Slovaks and if you look at the Croats and, and so forth, then you will find that they are not declaring their independence so much as fighting for civil rights inside the context of Hungary. The, the slogan that they adopt is, we are Hungarians, not Majars. And uh, I have a lot in my book about how you make that lexical distinction between Hungarian and Magyar, Uhor, Magyar, and so forth in the various languages of, uh, of the Hungarian kingdom. And it's very interesting that the Hungarians refuse to understand, oh, what does this mean, Hungary, Magyar, I don't understand this distinction at all. Ha, 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 this is Byzantine Greek, it makes no sense to me, this crazy hair splitting, precisely as a technique to delegitimate any non-Magyar claims to Hungarian citizenship. So it's a sort of interesting case where this Horfian argument of linguistic relativity is used as a political argument, and I found that fascinating enough to publish an article on. <laughs> but um, but it has big political consequences, as you say, for Stur. I suggest that Stur is a Hungarian loyalist, and his goal for Slovaks is not a Slovak state, but for them to have civil rights inside the Hungary, and he wants to see a multi-ethnic, tolerant Hungary. A lot of people like to see Stur as a sort of Garibaldi figure. You know, he's going to liberate the nation. And I suggest in my book that maybe a more appropriate analogy is a sort of Martin Luther King character, that he's fighting for civil rights and reconciliation with the Hungarians. It doesn't work out for him. The Hungarians insist on this modernization policy. Uh, 
you know, complicated story made simple. They insist on modularization. And Slovak efforts to create a multi-ethnic Hungary don't go anywhere. But just because something fails doesn't mean that it wasn't profoundly believed in at the time. So this is a, a very surprising picture of Stur. I cite in my book all sorts of people who picture Stur as a freedom fighter who hated the Magyars, who fought Hungary, because they conflate the idea of hating the Magyars and hating Hungary. Nah, Stur did have a, a bit of tension with the Magyars, but... I would suggest that he is fighting not against Hungary, but for Hungary. He's fighting for a multi-ethnic, for a multilingual Hungary. And that's, uh, I think, a pleasing and interesting conclusion, particularly in light of uh, historiographical uh, stereotypes that Western nationalism, quote-unquote, is tolerant and multi-ethnic, whereas nasty Eastern nationalism in Eastern Europe is uh, is intolerant. Ludovic Stur is a brilliant counterexample. Yeah, it's a very uh, persuasive argument on that. Uh, while we're talking about contingency and different ways of looking at uh, you know, different ideas of c- constructing identity in the 19th century, um, could you one of the particular options that again fails that you talk about is the North Slavic uh, identity. <laughs> I wondered if you would ask about that. There is a very transient political movement for the North Slavs of Hungary to join together in a single unit. So in contemporary terms, it's Magucci's Rusins plus Slovaks equals single unit North Hungarian Slavs. And this is um, not a very successful political movement. It doesn't really go anywhere. The people who are purporting it or who are propounding it are doing so from very transparent tactical motives. They're doing it because they want to have an electoral alliance in the forthcoming election, uh, you know, something like that. Which election would be that? Would that be 1861 or something? Or 61, yeah. It, it also pops up every now and then in 1848-49. You can see that Stur and Dobryansky are uh, thinking about an alliance against Kossuth, and well, uh, you know there are various tra- uh, traces and trends of this. I wrote an article on this actually, but it, unfortunately it was rejected, and I really should send it off because it's been sitting on my computer for something like six years. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, yeah, there is this this refashion. That doesn't really go anywhere. I'm interested in that sort of thing because it shows that people invoke national ideas sometimes for very tactical concerns. Um, and people talk about nationalism as, uh, or national loyalties or national identities, quote unquote, as these primordial things that exist forever and are very um, firmly held, very enduring. Um, and if that's your approach to nationalism, then I think you really have to struggle to explain why it is that people would use the word nation in these very unexpected contexts. Um, well, did yeah. you, if I may ask just a bit, you know, the, the North Slav identity you're talking about, isn't it already sort of a fallback position of an earlier hope that there be a kind of um, pan-Slavic and within a pan-Slavic identity within Hungary that embraced Croatians, it would embrace Serbs, 
and then the well, there, uh, the Slovaks and the there's and lots and lots and lots of evidence for a sense of we are the Slavs of Hungary, and there's lots of Slovaks who are corresponding with or collaborating with Slovaks. The Slovaks are, have very close ties with Ludovic Guy in Zagreb. And uh, so the Slavs of Hungary is a very lively and interesting movement. But the North Hungarian Slavic movement is doesn't doesn't have anything to do with the Croats. It's purely a Slovak Rusin thing, and that's kind of unusual. But isn't that because they the Croats had already sort of said, you know, you guys, you're not us, uh, and certainly the Serbs had done that. Is, isn't is, didn't I understand did I understand that correctly? That they, you know, the, the North Slovaks, you know, idea, or rather North Hungary, Hungary idea uh, for Slavs is because the South Slavs have already sort of said, you know, we're going our separate way. Well, the short answer to the question is I'm not sure, but I do find it hard to believe that the Croats had turned their backs completely on Slavic Brotherhood in 1861. Okay, that's a fair answer, uh, and I, and I, this one I certainly can't refute. Uh, as that's not something I'm particularly uh, I sharp think, on. I think that the legislative pan-Slavism is really interesting, uh, and the idea that all Slavs are the same people speaking the same language is surprisingly enduring, and it makes it hard to understand sometimes, or it makes it hard to distinguish sometimes between a Slovak who says, uh, "I'm so proud to be Slovensky." Look at our wonderful Slovensky land. Look at my beautiful castle. It is a wonderful Slovensky castle. So does that word Slovensky mean Slavic or does it mean Slovak particularist? And sometimes the text will say, ah, oh, the Slovensky language. It is so beautiful. You can hear the Slovensky language everywhere in the world, even in the Caucasus Mountains. Well, that would seem to suggest that the Slovensky language means, in our contemporary terminology, Slavic. Because there, there is no vision of Slovak nationalism that extends to the Caucasus. <laughs> and if someone says, oh, Slovensky language, it is so wonderful, you can hear it uh, across northern Hungary from Preshov to Bratislava. That would seem to suggest um, Slovak particularism. But even the Slovak particularism, you can't be sure. Uh, maybe it's just the local manifestation of a broader Slavdom. I think people are very keen to see Slovak particularist nationalism because they want 19th century pan-Slavs to be anticipating the future Slovak nationalism. And I imagine that a lot of the incidences of Slovak nationalism that are cited in the literature really more express the uh, Slavism of people who happen to be living in Hungary. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, and uh, which takes us to the issue of really the Hungarian context. Now, you start in the book with a chapter on that, but in some ways it really comes home to roost when the Hungarian context disappears, so that we really see suddenly what all those years of a few people talking amongst each other about being Slovak versus the general tendency that the vast majority of Slovaks of lesser economic means, for the most part, uh, have experienced in a, society, in a state that was, was encouraging 
education, uh, and certainly with certain desire that that be a, a major education, but nonetheless, uh, let's take it on, on the face of it. It was an education. They wanted to be educated. Mm. Uh, and that to a certain extent, this, these groups of people that you talk about, um, don't, even though they've been talked about for every, in every Slovak national history, you sort of demonstrate that they were cut off from the real reality, and it's only the new reality of Czechoslovakia, which is a peculiar event in itself, or development in itself, because it was hardly expected, that begins to really make sense of this, or and give, empower that small, relatively small circle of people. The um, story I tell about National Awakening is ironic from top to bottom. The, the great founder of the Slovak language, quote-unquote, by codifying the Slovak script, Ludovic Stur, did so from a combination of pan-Slav motives and Hungarian loyalism. Czechoslovakia, founded by people who believed in a Czechoslovak nation, who promoted Czechoslovak unity, very sincerely, I suggest, um, counterproductively pursued policies that generated Slovak particularist nationalism. I think that it comes from the legacy of pan-Slavism insofar as the legacy of pan-Slavism purported this idea that you could have a single language with different scripts. The pan-Slavs look at Russian in the Cyrillic alphabet, Polish in the Latin alphabet, and in a particular Latin alphabet, you know, with the O accent and the, the L with the little diagonal line, the W sound, that they look at Czech, they look at uh, Bulgarian, they look at uh, Slovene, and they say these are all dialects of a greater language. It doesn't matter that this book is in Cyrillic and that that book is in Latin alphabet because it's just a written dialect. I argue that this is not going to work. I argue that linguistic nationalism is not about the language you speak, not even about the language you read, but about the language that you write. I argue that people who learn to write in one alphabet are going to form a different interest group to create a different linguistic to create a different linguistic movement than people who write in another alphabet. But my Slovaks and the Czechoslovaks don't think that way. They believe that you can have a single language with different written forms. Even when the pan-Slav idea dies, the idea of a single language with different written forms lives on. So you have in Yugoslavia the idea of Serbo-Croat. Some of us use a Latin alphabet, some of us use a Cyrillic alphabet, same language, Serbo-Croat. That doesn't work either, but it takes a while for that not to work. In Czechoslovakia, you have a it, it doesn't last as long as Serbo-Croat, but you have a similar idea that, okay, well, we in Bohemia, we write in these letters. You in Slovakia, you write with those letters. We have, we have our spellings, you have your spellings, but it's all one language. The concept is of one language, even though the, the scripts are different. Because of this idea of the, the one language, different written forms, the Czech, Czechoslovak government creates a Slovak nationalist intelligence because it creates mass education, mass literacy in a uniquely Slovak script. So it's sort of ironic because they wanted to build Czechoslovakia, and in the end, 
they pursued a policy that destroyed the possibility of Czechoslovakia. I think that if the Czechoslovak government had just introduced Czech into Slovak schools, it would have worked. I think the number of people who were literate at a high level in Slovakia was so low, they could have learned Slovak. Yeah, the letters would have been different from what they were used to. But so the Hatala of China was also different from what most people were used to, because most people learned to read and write had learned to read and write in Hungarian anyway. I found evidence that when the today's modern Slovak, quote-unquote, Hatala of China was introduced in eastern Slovakia, there were protests against this Czech, down with this Czech. And this script that they were objecting to, this grammar book that they were objecting to as Czech and therefore foreign, was Slovak. If the Slovak can can survive and be introduced, uh, let me restart. If the Slovak can be rejected as Czech and still survive, still take root, I don't see why Czech couldn't also have survived and taken root. Nevertheless, the Czechoslovak government, whatever reason, chose not to pursue this path. Because I think because of this idea of the the literary dialects. But it's an ironic story because they they wanted to create Czechoslovak unity and the path they pursued created this unity. No, and I think that's a very interesting perspective on what happens. I mean, to what extent are they also driven by having to deal with you know some of the more conservative elements of the Slovak? Um, the Slovak political class, and uh, I, for some reason his name is escaping me. The Linka? Yes, yeah, Flinka, right, exactly. For some reason, it just wouldn't come out of my mouth. So you're asking about Flinka. Right. Well, Flinka is the uh, first example, I think, of a, a mass movement of Slovak particularist nationalism. So the Hlinka movement is important. But I think there's a tendency in the interwar period to overestimate how important it is. Uh, I think they win at maximum some 20% of the vote. Now, 20% is significant, but it does mean that 80% of the electorate rejects their ideas. So they're very, I, they're, uh, they play an interesting role because they're important, but at the same time, they're not as important as some people seem to think they are. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about this. And I'm looking forward to whatever else you produce. So you've got, you said you've already got projects in line. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about where you're heading there. Well, my next book, which is all written, is a book about nationalism and clothing. The title is Patriots Against Fashion. I have a book contract and everything. All I need to do is get the copyright clearances for all the pictures I want to use. So I'm hoping that will come out in, uh, you know, in the next nine months or something. That's a European-wide book, and it looks at this transformation to the national idea, as we were talking about before. And it's um, it's a European comparative book, and it has individual chapters on Wales and Bulgaria and Russia and Spain, and it's a um, so very Catholic in its in its uh, geographic scope. And then um, I've done been doing a lot of work on Hungary. And that may at some point turn into a book as well. But uh, I don't know. I never have trouble thinking of projects. My problem is to bring my projects to fruition. (laughs) So uh, I'm also working on an edited volume right now called Germanness Beyond Germany with a colleague in Sydney. And that book will be about 
what does it mean to be German in various expatriate communities beyond the core German ethno territory? My chapter is about Germans in Hungary. I've become very interested in Hungarian history proper from this Slovak research. My colleague works on Transylvania, so he's going to write about the German communities in Transylvania. But other chapters talk about German communities in Argentina and in Israel and in China and various parts of the world. Sounds quite intriguing. Uh, and yes, Germanness abroad, uh, I think there's lots to be done there. Um, and it doesn't have to be seen from the all German perspective that it once was. Um, and finally, you know, look, you're an established scholar. Uh, at this, what suggestions do you have for new scholars of Eastern Europe? I think, well, how shall I approach this question? My suggestion for new scholars is publish, publish, publish. That's the career suggestion. But the, the direction I would like to see East European studies move is to move away from the Second World War and particularly away from the Holocaust. The thing I fight most with with my students is that in the mind of the students I have in New Zealand, and I think this is also true in North America as well, Eastern Europe is that place where the Holocaust happened. And East European nationalism, that means people killing each other and it means anti-Semitism. Eastern Europe is also a place, however, of, of life and culture and creativity and there's all sorts of other things going on other than anti-Semitism. And I think that we are starting to get a, a distorted view of what Eastern Europe is all about because there's so much emphasis on the Holocaust. I sometimes, in my spare time, go to chat rooms and waste time there. And I happened to meet a man once that I was chatting with from Poland, and he was from a town I didn't know. I can't remember what town it is. But I looked it up on the Wikipedia to see you know, what there was to say about this town on the Wikipedia page. And the Wikipedia page of this town looked as follows. There was a paragraph that said this town was founded in the Middle Ages. It was part of the... Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth. It became part of the Russian uh, partition. It joined Poland in the interwar period. You know, uh, 500 years, 1,000 years of Polish history in one paragraph. Then there were six paragraphs on the Jews of this town and that they, what happened to them in the Holocaust. And then there were two paragraphs on this town has a football team. Is that a is that a fair description of a town in Eastern Europe that? The Holocaust is six paragraphs and, and everything else is three paragraphs. I think that's disproportionate. <laughs> the scholarly work is more balanced, of course, than the Wikipedia pages. But I still think from, well, in my institution, we get these alerts to do new books in Eastern European studies. Which books do you recommend the library should buy? And it seems it falls into equal, the books in Eastern Europe fall into equal halves. Books on the Holocaust, books on everything else. So I would urge scholars of Eastern Europe to try to see other things other than anti-Semitism. And that when they see examples of nationalism in the 19th century, maybe even an example of nationalism that has an anti-Semitic twinge to it, that there could be context for that other than this leads to the Holocaust. Yes, well, there were definitely other possible directions, as I think your book, in a certain, you don't talk about uh, Jews really very much at all, given the, the focus but there were many different options. Well, my story ends before the Second World War begins, really. And um, 
there aren't a lot of Jews who are attracted to Slovak loyalties. Jews in Hungary in the 19th century are more attracted to being Hungarian. So they assimilate to to a more Magyar way of looking at, at Hungary. So they don't they don't play a big role in my story. No, no, they're, they're, you know, I'm not suggesting that they should have. I'm just saying that it does. You know, there were other possibilities, and that's one of the great things about your book, is you remind us of other possibilities. Jewish history is very interesting, but things other than Jewish history are also interesting. <laughs> and uh, I think people are too interested. I mean, the Holocaust is a very important event that people should should understand. But I think that battle is kind of won for East European studies. I think actually we now face the alternate alternate challenge of teaching people that there's more to Poland than Austria, that there's more to East European nationalism than the Second World War. No, I, I think I think that will come. I mean, one of the things that had to happen is for Eastern Europe also to be to for World War Two, let's say, to end as it finally did in 1989, so people can finally get on with it. <laughs> yes. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Alexander, and I wish you the best. Well, thank you for this opportunity, and I wish you the best as well. And next year in Eastern Europe. Right. Okay. Well, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Alexander Maxwell about his book, Choosing Slovakia, published by Taurus Academic Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane. And I thank you for joining me today on New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I hope you'll join me again when I speak to another author about his book. Bye-bye.